0: Today our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To
1: the
2: ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost
1: their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries, I will
2: stand with you, my friend. For justice. Will a man. America.
0: America.
1: Welcome to another edition of Outside the Box. I'm Jeff Nyquist, your host. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. There is a famous essay written in the 1920s by Mao Zedong. And in that essay, Mao Zedong said that the first rule in politics was to know who your friends were and to know who your enemies were. And that if a person could not make those distinctions, he was in serious trouble indeed. And it seems to me, looking around America today, that we have a serious problem. We don't know who our friends are, and we don't know who our enemies are. And looking at this presidential election that we have today, we've got a very curious candidacy in Barack Obama. Barack Obama is unusual, not because he is black, not because of the color of his skin. What's the problem is the color of his politics. Today, we're going to have a guest, a very special guest, Herbert Romerstein. He has been a researcher. He has been an investigator working for Congress, and he wrote the Venona Secrets. He knows about subversion and espionage. He's been an expert in combating communism for many years. I very much look forward to this interview conducted on the day that the Georgia ceasefire took place. You're going to hear what he says also in the context of Russia's invasion of Georgia. This is very important because we have a whole generation of Americans now that grew up after the Cold War. They don't understand what that war was about. They don't understand the communism versus capitalist thing. And today what's happened, in the last 20 years especially, is communists, knowing that the word or the name communism, tarnished by the crimes of the Soviet Union, don't want to use that word. But nonetheless, it is possible to advance communism without using the word communism. It is possible to advance totalitarianism without using the old slogans of totalitarianism. It is possible, it is in fact efficient, for the totalitarians to come up with new slogans, new lies for old, as the KGB defector Anatoly Galitzen called it. So we have to tune in and we have to educate, especially this younger generation, as to what the possibilities are. We have a country that's free and open. And one of our weaknesses is we're very liberal in this country and we're easily subverted. The truth is easily turned around on us and we can become confused. We accept things at face value We do not recognize the falsification of facts sometimes until it's too late, until already the false version of events have entered into consciousness. And so it's extremely dangerous if we have a person who's running for president, who has come from a totalitarian far-left position, misrepresenting himself as being more reasonable and more centrist than in fact he really is. And now in this most critical election year, when the future of America is at stake, when the election of a left-wing radical could bring this country to its knees, it is most important that Americans take their responsibility, their citizenship seriously, and get to know the facts, and, as Mao Zedong once advised his colleagues, to know their enemies, both foreign and domestic. I want to also say a couple of comments About the background of the Cold War in terms of the espionage pursuit, we used to have something in this country called the House Un-American Activities Committee. It used to investigate subversive groups. Since that was eliminated more than 30 years ago, there have been no investigations of subversive groups in this country, and those groups have been able to function. They've been able to enter mainstream politics and the mainstream media and present themselves as, well, mainstream. And so... I want you to all stay tuned, because after this commercial break, we're going to come back with my guest. He's, a, he's an older gentleman, so you're going to have to sometimes listen carefully to his words. But they are very wise words, and they come from a lifetime of experience. So I want you to join me. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box, and we're going to be back right after these messages. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and this is Outside the Box, and with me today is my special guest, Herbert Romerstein. He is the author of The Venona Secrets and Heroic Victims, Stalin's Foreign Legion in the Spanish Civil War. He is a lecturer at the Institute of World Politics, has been chief of the Office to Counter Soviet Disinformation and Active Measures at the U.S. Information Agency, and has worked as a staff investigator for the House Committee on Internal Security. Welcome to the show, Mr. Romerstein.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: You've looked into the background of one of our presidential candidates, Mr. Barack Obama, and you found some um, disturbing elements in his background.
2: Yes, indeed. And as a, as a very young man in Hawaii, he had a mentor who was a communist party member named Frank Marshall Davis. And the problem was not that he was a communist; that was enough of a problem. But he gave Obama very, very bad advice. Mm -hmm. When Obama talked about that he couldn't repudiate Reverend Wright anymore, that he could repudiate his white grandmother. Yes. He told the story of his white grandmother coming home one day, and she had been hassled on the street by a panhandler, and she had been very frightened by him. Mm -hmm. The panhandler was black. And so he went to his friend, Frank Marshall Davis, to get advice on what to think. And Davis said, your grandmother should have been frightened because black people have a right to hate white people. Now, this is not the kind of thing we tell our children. We don't tell them that they're supposed to hate people.
1: Yeah, so the lesson is that black people have a right to hate white people. And, of course, that explains why he chose to worship at Reverend Wright's church. And, of course, uh, now there was this funny comment his wife, that I uh, remember uh, Barack Obama's wife made after... Uh, he was doing well in the primaries. It was the something like the first time she felt, what, proud of being an American or something like that?
2: First time she ever felt proud of being an American.
0: For the first time in my adult life, I am proud of my country because it feels like hope is finally making a comeback.
2: Now, she was old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism, hmm. and she wasn't proud to be an American then. She was only proud when her husband had a chance of becoming president.
1: And, and here's a woman that I just heard not long ago that, that the job she had before the election race, she was making over $300,000 a year. So this is a woman who was very successful in America, who has reason to be glad, at least, that she's living in a country that allows such opportunity that she can make so much money. Uh, and it's, it's hard to understand this mentality. Is is Obama's wife also involved in this um, sort of racist idea that America is this white country where white people should be hated by black people?
2: Well, she she wrote a black nationalist paper in college. But uh, even more recently, she said America is a hateful country or something like that. America does not hate people. America gives people opportunities, and she had them, and he had them. But obviously, they don't, they don't appreciate the opportunities that they received in America. Is,
1: is there a way to access this paper that she wrote? Is it on the Internet? Is there any way to read it?
2: I think it is on the Internet. I think for a time, they tried to make it unavailable. I don't know offhand the uh, you know the website that has it, but it, it is on the Internet.
1: So maybe if we did a Google with, uh, what, her name is Michelle Obama?
2: No, it's on my maiden name.
1: Oh, it's under her maiden name. So what was her maiden name? I don't remember. You don't remember. Um, boy, I, I certainly would like to have a gander at that, because that seems like another scandal brewing. Okay, my producer just handed the, me an excerpt from Michelle Obama's Princeton senior thesis. Her name, uh, when she was in school, her uh, maiden name, Michelle LaVon Robinson. If you do a Google search on the Internet, you should be able to find this. And here's uh, what she writes in her senior thesis. She writes, My experiences at Princeton have made me far more aware of my blackness than ever before. The future Mrs. Obama wrote in her thesis introduction, I have found that at Princeton, no matter how liberal and open-minded some of my white professors and classmates try to be toward me, I sometimes feel like a visitor on campus, as if I really don't belong. Regardless of the circumstances under which I interact with whites at Princeton, I often seem as if, to them, I will always be black first and a student second.
2: She's at a prestigious college, and she writes how bad it is to have to go to such schools with with white people.
1: Well, there's a simple way to look at this. Does Michelle Obama have a chip on her shoulder? And does she, is she overreacting? Is she, is she thinking that white people are more racist and prejudiced against her than they really are? This is a serious question because this woman is going to be possibly first lady of the United States. For the first
0: time in my adult life, I am proud of my country because it feels like hope is finally making a comeback.
1: You know, I heard something and I and maybe you can confirm this to me, but I heard recently that there was an issue about Obama's birth certificate, um, that there was some kind of birth certificate that his campaign was was touting as proof that he was born in the United States, which is a qualification to be president, and that that it's been called into question by by experts. Well,
2: the, the birth certificate that they produced was clearly a forgery. But we have every reason to believe he was born in Hawaii, which would have made him an American citizen. So there is no basic question except for the peculiarity of the campaign releasing a forged birth certificate. There might have been something else about this real birth certificate that was embarrassing, to him. he might not have been, you know, given as as uh, Barack Obama he might have had a different name at birth. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, maybe he was just Robert or something at birth. <laughs> that would have been embarrassing, you know. <laughs>
2: That's right.
1: So what else do we know about this uh, Frank...
2: Um... Frank Marshall Davis.
1: Frank Marshall Davis. In
2: 1948, he was sent by the Communist Party as a colonizer in Hawaii. They had a long-standing program since 1935. When Moscow instructed them to be sending organizers to Hawaii because they wanted to be able to undermine the, the U.S. bases Pearl harbor. But Davis arrives in 1948 with a recommendation from Harry Bridges of the Longshoremen's Union. Bridges was a secret member of the Communist Party, and he gave him the name of a man in Hawaii to contact Koji Ariyoshi, another Communist Party member. And Arioshi gave Davis a job as a writer for his newspaper, which was being paid for by the Longshoremen's Union, a Communist-run Union. The paper was being paid by the Union. And he then got a job with that paper as a columnist.
1: Wow. And do we know what kind of other advice Frank Marshall Davis gave to Barack Obama when he was young? And how young was Barack Obama when he first met this Frank Marshall Davis?
2: Probably in his early teens, but he's still meeting with him when he's about 18 and ready to go off to college.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: he told Davis that he's going to college, and Davis said, don't be corrupted by it. Just be very careful in college because you can be corrupted by it. And Obama writes in his autobiography that to avoid being considered a sun out, he gravitated toward the black nationalist students and to the Marxist professors.
1: So he preferred the Marxist professors and the black
2: nationalists. I mean, he, he chose the Marxist professors to train in.
1: Now, what college or colleges did Barack Obama go to? I heard that he went to Occidental.
2: He went to Occidental, and then went to Columbia University. Uh Uh-huh. And at Columbia, his mentor was Edward Said, a supporter of Palestinian terrorism against Israel and against the United States.
1: Yes, the famous Arabist.
2: Right. And when Said went to Chicago after Obama had graduated from Columbia... He needed to organize a fundraiser for his, his activities. Obama organized it for him, and there are pictures of Obama with Saeed in Chicago.
1: Hmm. Saeed's been a big supporter of the Palestinian terrorist movements and um, also a great critic of Israel, of course. Does this mean that Barack Obama is anti-Israel?
2: It depends on which Barack Obama you're talking about. Remember, he is flip on every issue. There's a website called the Anitronic Intifada, an Arab website, anti-Israel website, that has posted pictures of Obama with Saeed saying that Obama was their supporter and asked the question, why is he now catering to the Jews?
1: Now, it's interesting. The name Barack Hussein Obama sounds like an Arab name. Father's from Ethiopia. Am I correct in that? No,
2: no, from Kenya.
1: Kenya. Okay, his father was from Kenya, right.
2: I was a Muslim.
1: And his father was a Muslim?
2: Right. And that would be his name. Barack Hussein Obama, and that's the name his mother claims. She gave her a son.
1: Huh. He did live outside of the country through part of his childhood. He was in Indonesia going to school for part of his childhood.
2: Right. His, his mother was married to an Indonesian Muslim, and for a period of time he was in Indonesia. But then she brought him back to Hawaii and gave him to her parents to raise while she wandered off doing whatever it was she was doing.
1: Now, is is there a reason why his mom liked to marry a foreign Muslim men? Is there a reason?
2: I don't have a degree in abnormal psychology. It's very <laughs> difficult to answer that question.
1: Um, what were his grandparents like? Do we know have much knowledge about them?
2: No, we actually don't. Uh, apparently, the breadwinner was his grandmother rather than his grandfather. Hmm. But his his mother was in, in college in Hawaii when he was born, and she met at one of her Russian classes this Kenyan student who she was impregnated by. And by the way, Barack Obama Sr. was involved in the anti-war movement and showed up in the Hawaii newspapers as a spokesman for the anti vietnam War.
1: And so his parents met in a class for studying the Russian language? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Especially if you're an anti-war protester, to learn Russian, that's very interesting. Of course, the great competition at the time was between Russia and the United States, uh, the the great Cold War competition. So I suppose if you knew Russian, you could then go to the Eastern Bloc or work in a country where the Russians were influential, I guess.
2: Right, exactly.
1: Interesting. Um, uh, We've got a break coming up. Is there any other interesting detail, other people that have influenced Barack Obama that have a kind of similar background that we know of that have connections with the uh, communist movements or terrorist organizations?
2: Yes, in in Chicago. He arrives in Chicago and he makes friends with Ben Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who are the leaders of the Weather Underground, a terrorist organization that, that planted bombs people.
1: Wow. The leaders of the Weather Underground, a Marxist-Leninist terrorist organization back in the 60s and early 70s, as I recall. Isn't that
2: right? Yes, into the 80s. And they described themselves as communists. Yeah. And they said that their job was to bring the war home to America.
1: Bring the war home to America. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist and my special guest, Herbert Romerstein. And we're going to be back after these messages.
0: Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist.
1: Right, we're back. I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box. We're thinking outside the box today with our special guest, Herbert Romerstein who has uh, done uh, a good uh, background investigation on presidential candidate Barack Obama, discovering some disturbing details. And just before the break, he was telling us how Barack Obama had this association when he came to Chicago with uh, Bernadine Dorn and William Harris, who were leaders of the Weather Underground, a uh, Marxist-Communist organization that uh, blew up. How many bombs did the Weather Underground blow up? How many people did they actually kill?
2: Well, one of the bombs killed three of them. There's was a townhouse in Grand Central in New York. They were making bombs to explode at Fourth Dix at a dance and kill young soldiers and girls who coming to the dance. But while they were building the bomb, they succeeded in exploding it, and three of them were killed when the building collapsed on them. Hmm. But there's another weather underground person that was very close there and uh, Dorn. And her name was Kathy Boudin, and she was involved in organizing the Brinks robbery in upstate New York, where they held up a Brinks bank truck and killed three people. Hmm. She was captured on the scene and put in prison, She was eventually uh, released on parole. But uh, she had a son, and her son was raised by Bernardine Gordon and Bill Ayers. In the son today, he's down in, in Venezuela working for Chavez.
1: He's in Venezuela working for Hugo Chavez, the communist, right. aspiring communist dictator of that country. That is intriguing. The connections, the interconnections between people reveal in some sense, I mean, doesn't it all really reveal in some sense who we are?
2: Yes, indeed. But in this case, even more so because... Bill Ayers is extremely wealthy. His father was a millionaire. And he is involved in various foundations and so on.
0: Mm-hmm. And he
2: got Barack Obama jobs with his father's foundations. And so uh, Barack Obama is a millionaire because he got involved with the right people at the right time. And these people were Marxists, communists, they were terrorists.
1: And now this guy's running for president and he's got a shot at being in the White House.
2: Yes, it's very scary. And the scariest thing about it is his reaction this week to the Russian invasion of Georgia. Mm -hmm. His first reaction was, well, you boys, stop fighting. You know, moral equivalency, there's the equivalency of the Georgian victims and the Russian invaders.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And it took him three days to get around to saying that Russia had invaded Georgia.
0: We now have Russia that has encroached on Georgia. We've got to send a clear message to Russia and unify our allies that they can't charge into other countries with impunity. Of course, it helps if we are leading by example on that front. And if we are, if we are, if we are setting up, if we are, if we are abiding by international rules of the road and, and saying clearly to the Russians, look, Here are the rules. And when you break them, there are going to be consequences. But there's got to be a consistency there.
2: And the question comes up is, if he were president and we had one of our allies attacked by the Russians or by the Iranians, or who else? Would he take three days to decide to condemn it?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that is disturbing. How has this played out in the press? I mean, this, these facts have got to be known. Now, you've written about this. You've talked about this. What kind of reaction do you get writing and talking about this with, with the American public today?
2: Well, in the mainstream press, we've gotten very little publicity, a small attack in the Washington Post, and then the Associated Press for the past week has been circulating a story about Fang Marshall Davis, the mentor to Barack Obama. And it calls him a left-wing poet and does not mention the most important fact about him. He's a member of the Communist Party.
1: Yeah, that's like calling Hugo Chavez a left-wing populist. I, I, I was almost convinced of that until I talked to Hugo Chavez's pilot and chief of air staff, who told me, oh no, he's a communist. He's red. And uh, I, I thought, oh my gosh, all that stuff that I've read in the in the different newspapers and magazines is wrong. It's just disinformation. So the mainstream press is not willing to pick up this story?
2: No. We believe that the AP story was sort of a damage control by putting out the story. Then when we complain that they haven't run it, they say, well, we have. We ran a story about this uh, Nuffling poet. But uh, the Nuffling poet is described as being involved with uh, Richard Wright, for example, a very well-known black author, and uh, Langston uh, Hughes, a well-known black poet what they didn't mention about him was that when those two men quit the Communist Party and became anti-communist, he uh, accused them of being traitors to the cause.
1: Hmm, that's fascinating. With me is my special guest, Hermit Romerstein. I'm Jeff Nyquist with Outside the Box, and we're going to be back after these messages.
0: Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist.
1: And with me is Herbert Romerstein. He is an author. He is is a longtime student of communism. He has been the chief of the Office to Counter Soviet Disinformation and Active Measures at the U.S. Information Agency and has worked as a staff investigator for the House Committee on Internal Security. I wonder what happened, Mr. Romerstein, to the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Why don't we have some kind of concept in this country of uh, keeping a watch on internal enemies and keeping the people's representatives informed about what they're up to?
2: Well, right now there's no committee in Congress that is capable of doing those kind of investigations. The Un-American Activities Committee was abolished in 1975, by a parliamentary trick in the House of Representatives, by the Democratic majority. The committee had just won a vote to keep it going and funded, and the Democrats in their own caucus had a majority to abolish the committee. And so they simply changed the rules to the House, and the committee disappeared.
1: Hmm. What's most depressing to me is the fact that that was about the time that they started this sort of uh, investigation of our own security services, hounding FBI agents and CIA officers who'd been dedicated to fight, fighting communism for many years, uh, crippling those agencies' counterintelligence capabilities.
2: Exactly. In 1975, the New York State's legislature began an attack on the state police and New York City police were investigating communist and terrorist activities. And they succeeded in abolishing the intelligence unit of the state police. In New York City, they severely crippled the intelligence gathering operation. And uh, they were having terrorist actions taking place all over New York at that time by the Puerto Rican nationalist terrorists, by the Weather Underground, by various other terrorist groups. And they, they made sure that the police did not have the ability to fight back.
1: And they wonder why 9-11 happened.
2: No, that's exactly right. It was a result of Congress passing legislation that made it impossible for the CIA and FBI to exchange information and made it virtually impossible for the FBI to collect its own information.
1: Hmm. That is staggering. And, of course, uh, the communists then had a complete open door in this country at that time to infiltrate and penetrate and organize however they wanted and there was really nobody there to watch them, to see what they were doing to counter any of their moves.
2: That very closely linked to the question of open borders. The, uh, the terrorists that did the act on September 11th actually came into the United States illegally. They were able to get driver's licenses and get all the documentation so that they could go where they wanted to go and do what they wanted to do.
1: Yeah, I would heard the story. It was so perverse. After nine eleven, a couple of months that the that the um, immigration service had renewed visas on a couple of the nine uh, eleven terrorists, even though they were dead.
2: Exactly. They just handled it bureaucratically instead of handling it as a threat.
1: Hmm. Yes, there was no threat seen. Um, now, if we were to look at things, um, the way they looked at things in the nineteen fifties and i know you wrote a book called the venona secrets which i greatly admire uh which showed how many soviet agents were in the white house back in the 40s when they were starting to figure out how much the russians had penetrated into the us government and i i seem to remember the figure from the book that there were over 300 something like 330 plus soviet agents in the administrative branch of the us government that they could identify is that do you recall that
2: Yes, but they could not identify all the names. Those are cryptonyms or codenames for the agents. but I would say only about 100 of them could be probably identified by real name. So there was certainly a number left over and continued to function long after. The Venona material was available to us.
1: And we're talking about, of the 100 names of people we could figure out who they were, these Soviet agents back in the Roosevelt administration they were they were big people, weren't they? I mean uh, I mean people like what Harry Hopkins
2: Harry Hopkins and Nomund Curry in the White House, in the State Department, Harry Dexter White, the Treasury Department, and they could not only steal secrets, which of course they did, but they could also influence policy and At the end of World War II, our policy allowed the Soviet Union to take half of Europe, and that that policy was advocated, promoted by the Soviet agents and the U.S. government.
1: So part of the reason or part of the the, uh, dexterity of Stalin to acquire half of Europe for the Soviet Union was the fact that Roosevelt was surrounded by Soviet spies and these that you've named are only the ones that we know about. I mean, there were Soviet agents that that will never be named. We'll never know about them and the Russians haven't obliged by opening their files, have they? No,
2: they haven't. When they did open some files, Uh, My wife and I had the opportunity to go to Moscow and and go through them. And we brought out thousands of pages of documents. But shortly after we left there, uh, the files were closed and they're no longer available.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Yes, I've heard that there was this small window of opportunity to look into there. So dark are these secrets that Moscow doesn't want the Americans to even know the history of the depths to which the Russians would go to, to penetrate, infiltrate, blackmail, and steal our secrets and our political uh, birthright.
2: Exactly. And, and you can see it, you know, coming home to Rus today. I mean, Russia is re- returning to the good old days of Stone. The invasion of, of Georgia it is to reestablish at least the Tsar's empire. And they would i up short to get back Stone's empire. And uh, of course, we don't seem not to have the ability to stop them. Hopefully, they'll be stopped in Georgia now.
1: Yeah, that's right. We have. I understand a provisional ceasefire in Georgia, according to the Russian President Medvedev. But it was, a, it was, a, it was a quite a brutal and sudden, as President Bush said, overreaction on the part of the Russians. But it was definitely premeditated. There's no doubt about it. It was planned weeks in advance. And we can tell this looking back by the fact that every Russian ambassador was recalled to Moscow uh, for a meeting on July 15th. And that the Russian military exercises down there were just a, a sham to, to line up the troops for this invasion.
2: And they they did, in fact, line up divisions, an uh, armored division and a division of Spetsnaz paratroopers, and their Navy. They all, at one time, converged on, on Georgia. Yeah. So this had to be prepared long in advance. But more than that was that they ceasefire today. Uh, Georgia is still being bombed by Russian airplanes, although the Russians claim that they've agreed to cease fire. Mm. but I was watching Russian television and they were talking about the Georgians have agreed to the Russian plan of a ceasefire well the ceasefire was a French plan and uh, it was negotiated first with the Georgians now with the Russians but the Russians aren't obeying even what they agreed to
1: Hmm. and that is actually typical of totalitarian regimes isn't it
2: exactly and the same kind of propaganda we were getting from the Russians during the Soviet days we're hearing today from Russia.
1: And you know what frustrates me is, as a person who writes a column and has to deal with this every day, there are so many Americans, a shocking number of Americans, think that the U.S. is the aggressor in any kind of altercation now anymore, that we have gotten so far away from being in for ourselves in our own country and so far away from the truth and being able to tell the truth from totalitarian lies that a lot of people now are confused.
2: Well, that's part of it. I was reading one article today that argued that this was all America's fault, what's happening in Georgia, Uh. because uh, America had violated its uh, its promise to Russia that parts of the former Soviet Union would not be admitted to NATO. Well, we admitted, of course, to NATO, these three Baltic states, and Georgia and Ukraine have asked for admission to NATO and have been turned down. Had NATO done the right thing and admitted Georgia and Ukraine, this uh, Russian aggression would not have taken place.
1: Yeah, and now, now, of course, we're going to see what NATO's made out of. We're going to see how strong the American leadership is, and we're going to see what happens because... The U.S. has got to give guarantees and um, NATO has to give guarantees to Ukraine and Georgia because those countries, they're very courageous people and they can be smashed with Russian tanks very easily if the Russians are encouraged in the least to, to break out.
2: Exactly. We have a responsibility in the United States to offer the Georgians a resupply of the equipment that they lost in the Russian attack and to continue to train Georgian troops.
1: Yeah, yeah, we should, we should definitely do that. And I, I hope that the Georgians are contemplating expanding their, their military for defense because the country is really vulnerable and could have very quickly been overrun before the United States could react.
2: That's right. But remember that the Georgians are friends of the United States. There are 2,500 Georgian troops in Iraq fighting side by side with the Americans. And they went back now to defend Georgia. But, uh, they have been our friends,
1: and we have a responsibility to be their friends. Yeah. Now, uh, returning back to the subversion topic, the thing that I've read again and again and heard again and again from people in the intelligence community and elsewhere is that the Russians are spying on us and infiltrating us and doing subversion and still working with communist parties abroad, just like they were during the Cold War, only in some cases more intensively. Uh, have you heard the same information?
2: Yes, with the exception of the Communist parties abroad. Most of the Communist parties are tiny groups now, and they have not been given uh, the financial support from Russia that they were getting during the uh, Soviet regime. But the Russian spying continues. There's a book that came out recently called Comrade J" by Peter Erling about a Russian intelligence officer operating in the United States after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. recruiting people, spying, and organizing agents
1: of influence to so affect American policy. Yeah, in fact, um, uh, Sergey Trechikov, at the beginning of the book, is asked by the author uh, why he wants to give this message, and he says, actually, that the American people are naive about Russia, and that Russia wants to destroy the United States. Those were the words he used, and that Americans need to be alerted to this, which is really a shocking thing to hear from a Russian defector, that they want to destroy us.
2: Right. And when you go back to the earlier days, when there was a Soviet Union, and the Weather Underground sent a group of young people down to Cuba to be trained, and one of the trainers that they had was a man named Julian Torres Rizzo, an officer of the Cuban secret police, the DGI. And Rizzo said to him, you Americans have to remember that you come from a degenerate country that must be destroyed.
1: Hmm. And that was what the Cuban DGI intelligence officer told the American trainees, that America was degenerate and has to be destroyed.
2: Yes, so those were the trainees that were sent down by Bill Ayers and Bernardine Gorn, the current trends of Barack Obama, and back in those days, which was the 1970s, they were sent down to Cuba for training.
1: That's what a lot of Americans need to understand, that there are people out there who hate America, who want to destroy America, who will do anything to those ends, and these people live in many countries, and including right here. They live here in America.
2: Well, that's true. And many of them resent the fact that uh Ronald Reagan won the Cold War and destroyed the Soviet Union, and they would like the Soviet Union back so that they could threaten the united States
1: yeah, and it looks like the soviet union is is back in some sense do you Do you have the sense that the that the Russians have been um dealt a diplomatic defeat here in this recent attack on georgia
2: the way they're screaming and yelling and crying, I think so. One of their complaints today on Russian television was that the president of Georgia, who speaks English very well, was broadcasting in English all over the world and telling the story of the Georgian people.
1: No, see, this is something that they don't want. They don't want the other side's story told. Right. Because they are so used to lying to people and getting people to believe their lies that when someone comes straight forward and and in the face of death tells the truth, it, it just it hurts them.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I can always stand as long as the truth is not available. And uh, they resent very much the fact that the Georgian is telling the truth and that the American president said what he did about Russian aggression today. Mm -hmm.
1: It is very important. And, of course, the next president being chosen, and here we're talking about Barack Obama and uh, comparing him. I I understand that uh, John McCain made very strong statements condemning the Russian aggression Um, compared to uh, Barack Obama.
2: Right from the beginning of this incident, McCain was saying the right things. And Obama was saying, you boys, please stop fighting.
1: Now, I I wanted to return to something you said earlier about the communist parties around the world being shrunken. And now, with so many former communists having entered the social democratic parties in Europe... Uh, in Latin America and actually uh, using the social democratic parties as platforms to advance the same old Marxist agenda. And with the left wing of the Democratic Party containing people like Barack Obama, who are supported and encouraged and advised by people like Bernadine Dorn and people like um, Frank Marshall Davis, uh, do we have, in essence, a kind of Bolshevik party in democratic drag in America?
2: Well, the Communist Party, as it was going out of style, sent their people into the Democratic Party, and not only them, but their their children and their grandchildren. We used to call them red diaper babies. But there is a faction of people who would be communists if they had the opportunity. But the American Communist Party only has about a 1,000 members, Mm -hmm. and most of them very old, but it has endorsed Barack Obama for the presidency. The Communist Party USA newspaper has actually endorsed Barack Obama.
1: Hmm. The Communist Party newspaper has endorsed Barack Obama. Right. Well, I want to ask you one more question. How many younger people understand what you understand?
2: Well, the problem is that time has passed so quickly, the Berlin Wall collapsed over 20 years ago now.
1: And they just uh, they, they don't understand what it was about?
2: No. Well, when I was in high school, we learned about world War to. Now kids are taught nothing.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, we just have about a minute left, uh, Mr. Romerstein. I want to thank you for being on the show. Do you have any closing comments you'd like to make for the listeners?
2: Only that it's our responsibility to continue to learn, whether it's about Barack Obama or, or Russian aggression in Georgia. The more information we have, the better off we're going to be.
1: Yes, we are, and I want to thank you for your service and all the information you've provided to us and all the books you've written, uh, Herbert Romerstein.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
1: This is a great American, and this is a great message for everybody. It's our responsibility to learn, to become familiar with the facts, to understand what our enemy is, who they are, both foreign and domestic, how they work, how they operate, how to recognize them, and how to defend our country, because we are a republic. And as citizens of a republic, we all have a part to play in that defense. To the ones that wear the uniforms To the ones that lost their lives To a nation that's been torn God hears your painful cries I will stand with you, my friend For justice will amend America I'm Jeff Nyquist, this is Outside the Box, and we're going to be back with concluding remarks after these messages. Welcome back, and I'm Jeff Nyquist, this is Outside the Box, and this is where we really think Outside the Box here. There was an article, and it was very noteworthy to me, and I I look over these articles again and again, it was from Pravda. And this is 29th July 2008, and it was uh, the headline was Russia to USA, don't tell us whom we should be friends with and whom we should sleep with. It involved an interview with a, a Kremlin diplomat, who had some insight, some insight information about what the Kremlin was thinking was going to happen in America with the election and with the economy. Pravda basically said that the Russian administration believes that the United States. May soon suffer from a serious political crisis. In fact, they think this political crisis is going to be due to an economic crisis, very possibly. And here's a quote from Pravda. America is standing on the verge of a large-scale crisis of its own existence. They will first need to learn how to live within their means. This, this said the diplomat. The Kremlin uh, diplomat said, we have problems with American ideologists who impose such foreign politics of the United States. And he said that Russia and the United States were neither friends or enemies. Of course, he was lying with that. But he noted that America was about to go through this crisis. Russia is waiting for the U.S. markets to shatter. Russia is waiting for NATO to shatter. It is waiting for America to show its lack of resolve and its lack of economic solvency. And America is strained to the limit. America has been carrying the burden of the free world, of defending the free world, of holding the world market together for many years. And the Russians, meanwhile, with their allies, have been infiltrating and subverting and attempting to sabotage the American position. There's no doubt about this. If you become familiar with the real facts of what's going on in the world and you understand it, you understand that most of the anti-American propaganda in the world is following a line invented in the Kremlin decades ago. The anti-American slanders that are thought to be new and on the lips of of leftists and liberals all over the world are old Soviet propaganda uh, stock phrases and ideas. Nothing new in them at all. So when we talk to Mr. Romerstein, when we talk to different people in the world about about what's happening in Russia and, and, and the impact of subversion and communism, for example, communist ideology on the United States, we're not talking about something that's innocent. We're talking about something that's very dangerous. Moscow is like a vulture that's waiting for America to keel over so it can pick at our flesh. They are expecting us to have this massive crisis, and they are hoping to exploit that crisis to their own advantage. So I want everybody out there to remember these words, and I'll say them again, that from Pravda, the Russian administration believes the United States may soon suffer from a serious political crisis. Let's see if the Kremlin's right, and let's see what they're going to make out of it. I'd like to remind the listeners to visit my website at jrnyquist.com, and there you'll find a link to my most recent column, which is about the Georgia crisis and what the Russians are really up to. Um, you can also access all my columns on Financial Sense, my past columns at WorldNetDaily and SierraTimes.com and other internet publications. So I encourage all the readers to go there. There's lots of information on my website. It's a great resource. And, um, and I hope you'll visit it. It's www.jrnyquist.com. That's J-R-N-Y-Q-U-I-S-T.com. And that's my website. Go check it out. There's lots of articles written by people from all over the world about the issues that are going to affect your life in the coming months and years. To the ones that wear the uniforms To the ones that lost their lives To a nation that's been torn God hears your painful cries I will stand with you, my friend For justice will amend
0: America.
1: I'm Jeff Nyquist. I hope you'll join me next week at the same time for another edition of Outside the Box.